This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Wharton Professor G. Richard Schell's new book, Springboard, Launching Your Personal Search for Success, encourages readers to embrace major transitions in life from college to a first job, from one career to the next, or from work to retirement. Based on a popular course Shell teaches at Wharton, the book departs from the conventional how-to-succeed formula by challenging readers to define success for themselves. Hi, my name is David Heckman. I'm here with Professor Richard Shell to talk about his new book, Springboard. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Dave. First question, Richard, you're really well known for your work in negotiation and persuasion, so why write a book about success? Well, Dave, it's, um, it's been a long journey. Um, the, the, the materials on success actually preceded the materials on negotiation and persuasion. I've been interested in success probably since I was in my 20s. And um, it also feeds into a real passion I have, which is in all my teaching, to help students and executives uh, bring more self-awareness to their uh, practice, whatever it is. And the subject of, of success allows me to do that really directly. Here at Wharton, you teach three very different audiences about the topic of success and challenge them to think about what is success, that being our Wharton undergrads, our MBAs, and our senior executives in our advanced management program. What do you see as the differences in the way that your audience reacts to the question? Um, well, that's a, that's a great question. They, they're, they're at very different stages of life, and so each one of those groups has a sort of different question in their head when you ask them, what do you mean by success? So for an undergrad, they're standing right on the, on the edge of adulthood and uh, very anxiously awaiting the real world after uh, you know, doing school for 16 years. And for them, it really is the first time to encounter what their life goals might consist of, uh, that sort of begin thinking about family, begin thinking about career, begin thinking about how to balance those things. And I think uh, in asking that question for them, I'm able to, in some ways, set their minds at ease, that they don't have to answer that question all at once, and that their lives are kind of more like an experiment than uh, a test. Uh, for the MBAs, it's a little bit further down the road, and I think they have a more career-directed focus to that question. They're all thinking very, very directly about the kind of professional niche that they're seeking and what kind of success that may, uh, that may hold for them. And then for the executives, it's, uh, it's, it's much, much different. Uh, the senior executives are much more mindful of issues like family, uh, of issues like work-life balance and uh, the kind of mentoring that they can do for other uh, people a little younger than they are and help those younger people think about what a meaningful career might look like or how they can uh, carve out a life that will make uh, sense to them. So at some levels, I'm teaching the executives how to be coaches as much as I am opening up a new subject for them. Many people in our culture are chasing success goals of fame and fortune, yet you and your book sort of say that they could be traps. Uh, what do you mean by that, and how does your, how does your book help the reader define success for themselves? Um, well, the, the, 
the culture, one of the points I make in the book is that whether we like it or not, our surrounding culture is going to create a lot of expectations for us. And when you filter that culture through the prism of a family and where, how you grew up and where you grew up and the peer group that you grew up around, you're going to have almost a hypnotic effect on what uh, people think they ought to be pursuing. And with the media that we have and the uh, celebrity culture that we have, it's very, very common to see people unconsciously adopt um, a frame of reference that if they're not famous, they're not successful. If they're not wealthy, they're not successful. And to, uh, even when they know better, continue to behave in ways that give them this sort of underlying sense of dissatisfaction if they're not famous or rich enough. So a lot of what I do in the book and in the teaching that I do is to try to give people a chance to gain a little perspective on that. And that means looking at the sources of those early messages that they may have internalized uh, and giving them a chance to make a few more choices about whether uh, that sort of impulse toward uh, getting recognition or the impulse toward making another $100,000 uh, when they have choices about using their time other ways, um, whether, they, you know, whether they can gain more control over that. I mean, part of what I do is try to substitute uh, new goals for the, for the more automatic ones that our culture provides. And so instead of fame, I try to get people to start thinking about gaining respect. That means a smaller audience of people who know you better and uh, giving uh, you a sense of satisfaction from gaining the respect of that group as opposed to recognition from people you don't even know. And when it comes to the money side of things, I try to emphasize whatever your needs are that would relate to financial security for you and your family and not just a status scorecard that uh, people sometimes slip into when they just start counting their, uh, their bank account uh, zeros at the end of their net worth. So I think part of it is helping people wake up that realize that they're being unconsciously influenced. And the other is to provide them with a more thoughtful alternative that when they think about it actually is something they'd much rather pursue. In the U.S. Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson penned the words that we have the inalienable right to, the, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Should he have edited those words to be the, the pursuit of personal success? <laughs> um, I don't know that the Founding Fathers had the word success in their um, normal vocabulary. Happiness was, though. And I think it's interesting if you look back at that, um, at that event in our founding, because the original text said life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And then Jefferson edited out property and wrote the word happiness over it. And I think it's a lot of cultural commentators think that that single uh, editing changed the course of American culture <laughs> because the word happiness is very ambiguous. I think it meant one thing to Jefferson. He was a stoic uh, philosopher. He followed a very strict regime in his life uh, and uh, got his joy from gardening and from, uh, from intellectual pursuits. We've interpreted I think, to mean uh, longer times at casinos and, uh, and more, uh, more elaborate vacations. So, so one of the things I try to do in the book is give people a chance to think more deeply about what happiness actually means. And it turns out it means three different things. The research shows it's, it's a kind of momentary emotion 
that is something that people feel that's a good feeling. But it's also a kind of positive evaluation when you look back on a period of time and consider whether your efforts have been uh, rewarded with some kind of achievement. But it's then finally a kind of satisfaction that comes with almost a spiritual dimension of awe, of appreciation of nature, of a sense of connection to nature and the world and maybe even a deity. And those kinds of happiness feelings, I think, are the deepest of all. And so when you speak of pursuit of happiness, it's probably some mix of all those three things. Uh, but it's not, I don't think, the, the sort of simple metric uh, that, uh, that most people consider. In your book, uh, you describe an experience where you went to a conference about happiness, and uh, a wise angel arrived, and he said that happiness is just three things, good health, meaningful work, and love. You have that, you're happy. Was he missing anything uh, relative to success as you would define it? Well, uh, the guy I call the wise angel was really just a senior citizen who wandered into a Wharton seminar the faculty were giving on the relationship between income and, and, the, uh, and the emotion of happiness. And I called him the wise angel because he was dressed in working man's clothes. He really didn't belong in the setting. And the question uh, uh, that he posed to the presenter was about as unacademic uh, a concept of happiness as you can find, but, but very deeply felt and in many ways very wise. So I think uh, good health is certainly a very com important component of well-being. And Meaningful work is something I talk at great length about in the book, because that's something I think that's well worth understanding and pursuing. And love, of course, is the foundation for all, everyone's personal life if you're going to sustain any kind of uh, meaningful life. So he had a lot uh, captured with that. But I think one of the things he missed that most people think of when they think of success is some sort of notable achievement. Uh, and. Um, I think you know. I think that people get a lot of satisfaction from achieving something significant that they try to set out, and that whether or not it's recognized, that's a sort of cherry on top. Uh, I think your uh, your sense of satisfaction comes from doing things well that are important to you. Uh, when they're recognized, that's uh, that's sort of an extra benefit for that. But I think achievement is something uh, that most people would consider pretty important when you get to the concept of, of success compared with just the concept of happiness. Great. Uh, another thing you mentioned in your book is the trade-offs between success and happiness. And now we live in a world that says, can't we have both? Uh, I, you know, I, I believe that um, there's only 24 hours in a day. Uh, we each only get to live roughly 32,850 days in a year, uh, or of, in a lifetime of uh, 90 years. And how you choose to spend that most precious asset, time, uh, does involve trade-offs. Uh, I think if you're going to be pursuing momentary happiness, for example, uh, then you're probably uh, going to be not uh, working the sweat of your brow uh, in uh, some very labored way on some important achievement that you're trying to uh, accomplish. And by the same token, um, you know, there are moments when if you're doing the right kind of work, you can have both a very strong sense of achievement and a very powerful and fulfilling sense of satisfaction. So it is the case that there are some things that we do where we hit a sweet spot. 
and we can feel both very positive emotions and also accomplish a great deal. But I think you know the other half of that is uh, you have to choose how to spend your time, and um, and I think some people overdo the achievement side and they don't remember that their own uh, intellectual well-being and their emotional well-being is something, their family is something that they need to nurture. And other people uh, sort of uh, focus on their personal lives and at the end of the day may feel some frustration that they didn't achieve as much as they would have liked. I think your book uh, makes it very clear that success is definitely a journey and not a destination. Can you tell us a little more about your discovery of your own personal success? Well, that's what my students always want me to talk about. <laughs> I have them write a paper on what is success, and they say, well, Professor Shell, what's your theory of what success is? And I'm, I always resist it because I don't want them to, uh, to sort of copy the teacher. Uh, I think it's their responsibility to come up with their own ideas. I mean, for myself, I think um, I had a very... Um, uh, strong crisis in my post-college years. I was a, a son of a general in the Marine Corps who was the head of a college, a military college, Virginia Military Institute. I became a pacifist uh, as a result of the Vietnam War, so I had a very, very uh, rupture, ruptured event in my uh, young adulthood, uh, breaking with all my family traditions. My grandfathers had both been in the military, too. Actually, in your book, you use the word that you cut the narrative story of your life. Right. And I thought that was very powerful. It's a very powerful description to describe what, what you were going through. Yeah. And, and I think when you're, whenever you face a crisis like that, as in my case, I really had to just um, you know, do a 180 degree turn from everything I'd assumed success meant. Because I was, at the time, enrolled to be a naval officer in college. I was going to graduate from college and go in the Navy. And to turn 180 degrees away from that toward uh, being a pacifist and protesting the war that we were in at that time, it just it just makes it very difficult for you to remember who you are. And so for me, that crisis uh, really ended up putting me on a journey uh, where I just uh, stopped uh, working. I, I left the country. I traveled for a couple of years. I um, just you know went on a quest uh, to see if I could figure out you know, who I was and what I needed to do next. And so the book tells that story. It's a, it's a longer story than I have time to tell here. But it's, I, think, I think we are in some sense defined by the conflicts we've overcome. And that, um, that story happens to be the conflict I overcame. And that gave me the seed of my passion for this subject. But I challenge students, I challenge executives to look into their own lives and identify the crises that have defined them, and to draw strength from that, and to draw direction from that. And I think that's, a, that's one very good way to make some constructive use of the you know, difficult times that you've had. Great. When you wrote uh, Springboard, who did you have in mind as being your audience or your reader? That's a great question, because it's a very tough one. I, um, I thought at the beginning that I was going to write this book based on the course that I teach, which is a pretty simple idea. I have a course, I'll write a book. Um, when, I, when I started getting into it, though, I realized that uh, the course I teach is very intimate, it's very interactive, there's a lot of writing and my resp responding to their writing. And so with an audience that's reading a book, then you can't see the audience, uh, I suddenly realized I had, uh, I had a different 
problem to solve in writing it. And as I wrote it, I actually began realizing that it wasn't just students that I was writing for, that's my typical audience as a teacher, but really anyone who finds themselves at a point in life where they need to make a transition. And it could be a student who's transitioning to adult life after undergraduate studies. It could be a graduate student who's transitioning to a professional level after graduate studies. But it could also be someone who's facing a crisis because they have to change their career and retool their goals and rethink who they are with respect to their work. It could be someone who's uh, just coming off of a personal crisis and they have to think about who they are after a divorce or after the death of a loved one. Or finally, people who are coming into their retirement years and they have to you know, really consider what they're gonna do with their life after they stop their uh, sort of identified career. So I think it really is relevant for anyone who's asking the question, what should I do with my life next? In, at the end of the book, uh, you give a pretty good bibliography of other recommended readings and you acknowledge that there's many other books on the market about success. What's different about yours? Well, that, that's another, uh, that was another crisis uh, for me as I wrote the book because I think over the time I drafted it, I wrote about five different kinds of books, each of which was one of the success types of books. Uh, so maybe by process of elimination, I wrote something that's different. But my, I think at the end, I intended uh, and I discovered that what I was writing was not a book about how to succeed like me and not a book about the one true path to success, which you might read if you, wrote a, you know, read a book on goal setting or you read a book on uh, follow your passion or uh, the many different kinds of one true answer kind of books. My, my goal in writing this book was really to help each reader discover for themselves their own authentic, legitimate, deeply felt goals with respect to what success means and then look inside and assess the strengths, their personality, their motivations, their skills, as to how they can best utilize what God gave them to go ahead and achieve that success which they themselves had defined. So it really is a book about the reader as opposed to a book about either me or some uh, set of uh, you know, flawless answers to the question how to succeed. As you work across this variety of audiences, beginning with undergraduate students up through senior executives, what do you see as their biggest obstacles to figuring out their path to success? Fear. I think it's, uh, when I look into the eyes of undergraduates who are facing their first job after graduation, um, they are very, very anxious that they make the exactly right choice the first time out. Uh, and a lot of what I do when I speak to them individually is say, look, um, relax, just do something that interests you and then use your early working life as an experiment to learn more about who you are as you work and what might interest you and what skills you have. And even senior executives, uh, when occasionally I run into one who uh, is uh, at one of these transition points, and they usually come up to me during a break in our courses or at lunch or something, and they want some uh, extra counseling, some extra chance to chat. And what I really see is fear, uh, anxiety, that some very defined part of their life that they, ver they know very well that they're masters of is coming to an end, and they look out into the future, and they, they feel this sort of 
uh, black hole in front of them as to what, what's going to happen next, what, kind of, what should I do? And um, so my effort in the book and in my courses is really to reassure and to provide encouragement uh, to be thoughtful, um, be a little fearless, take some courage, and uh, put yourself in motion. You know, there's a, um, if, you, if you follow professional ice hockey, which my wife and I occasionally do, uh, there's a very good practice uh, if you're trying to uh, score uh, in an ice hockey game. Uh, and basically the advice is keep shooting. <laughs> uh, and good things happen if you're in front of the net and you're swinging away trying to get the puck into the net. And I think life's like that. Uh, you know, you get out there and just keep shooting and, uh, and things happen. People respond, new avenues open up, uh, and, uh, and you get a chance to find a new path. Um, in your book, you devote a fair amount of pages to a former student, now entrepreneur, named Eric Adler. Can you tell us a little bit about why he's so special? Well, Eric, Eric, when I was writing the book and I was casting about for uh, role models that I myself consider successful, um, Eric's uh, name came right up front in my mind. I taught him, before I actually conceived the negotiation course, I taught Eric negotiation and I taught him uh, another core course. And while he was an MBA student, I got to know him. He was a, uh, had been a high school teacher for eight years before he came to Wharton. So he's sort of a non-traditional Wharton student. Um, he then, while he was at Wharton, um, got very excited about a traditional business career in consulting uh, and, uh, and left Wharton to pursue that. And I had never really thought that was the direction that he would end up in or that I was hoping he would end up in. But, you know, people take their own path, and I was happy to see that he you know, was engaged. But then a year or so later, uh, I caught up with his story, and he had moved to Washington, D.C., he had become very dissatisfied with his consulting uh, career. It just wasn't working out. And so he had had the courage to, um, to quit. And I, I think um, he then went on to go back and knit together all the pieces of his life that allowed him to be the most successful person he could be. His parents were entrepreneurs. He decided he wanted to be an entrepreneur. He had a background in education, secondary education, so he started looking for how to pursue uh, a business in secondary education. And he ended up creating a whole set of model uh, public schools, but they're boarding schools for low-income students. They actually live residentially. And he succeeded in finding a model to actually uh, uh, get those kids which were, who would otherwise not even graduate from high school, and he has 100% of them going to top colleges. So he really put together all the pieces that uh, I see as going into uh, the word success, as I define it. He created his own goals. He looked into his own past, found his own strengths, found his own experience, and came up with an original conception to how to implement that. And I think his life indicates this sort of trial and error experimental model rather than, you know, you, you, you go around the merry-go-round and you get the brass ring and, you know, game over, you're successful. You mentioned one word in your description of Eric uh, that sounds to me like it began with some level of dissatisfaction. Yeah. And do you think that's key? Absolutely. I think, I think that's one of the dangers of over-focusing um, on happiness. Uh, happiness is, this, if you think of that as the end state, you know, oh, I'm, I have to be happy. 
uh, you're going to miss a lot because it's from your dissatisfaction, it's from your unhappiness that you often get the motivation to do something new, something better, something more interesting, something more uh, educational for you. Uh, you you know, have to be willing to be unhappy in a relationship in order to find a better one. You have to be unhappy in a current job in order to take the plunge and seek a better one. Uh, and uh, so I think there's a lot of power in negative emotions that, uh, at least if they're not overly negative for too long, uh, are overlooked in uh, the modern culture's sort of fascination with the whole idea that you know, success equals happiness. What do you see as the biggest aha moment that students have at the end of the success class? I think, well, for under, different audiences have different ahas. I think the undergraduates have a big aha because they suddenly realize this is something they get to define. And they've been in the business of checking boxes all through their lives to go to great high schools, to go to you know, take SATs, to get into a great school and college, and, and maybe even recruit into great firms for their first job after college. But I think they really uh, begin feeling empowered when they realize uh, that uh, this is an opportunity, not something that they have to fear, and that the future is something they get to shape and craft. Uh, so I think that can be a big aha moment for them. Uh, I think for the older people, uh, I think the aha comes with validating for them that life is a little bit more uh, nuanced uh, and rich than just their career achievements. We, I was teaching a course for bankers here on campus uh, about a month ago. Uh, there were 250 bankers uh, for uh, the Stonier Business School here on campus. And um, I was making uh, a point about uh, sort of when you achieve someone else's goal in life, you recognize it because you don't feel any satisfaction from having achieved it. And this guy in the back raised his hand. He said, you know, Richard, that's exactly right. I've been trying to get promoted for the last three years. And a month ago, I got promoted, but I didn't feel any satisfaction from it. And I, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that I wasn't, the, the, the promotion wasn't really my own goal. Uh, so I think the older folks sometimes suddenly realize that you have to live your own life. And sometimes you have to take a little time off to craft what your own goals are and not just end up feeling empty when you achieve something everybody else wanted you to achieve. One other question around personality and style. Do you see a correlation between certain personalities and styles and success? In other words, do you have to have a certain style and personality to be successful, or is success really an option for anyone? Well, of course, back to the premise, uh, you get to define success for yourself. So, uh, so I think it's uh, whatever personality you have that will probably affect how you define it. And then that's the life you get to live. So um, I think if you looked at individual aspects of success, there probably are some correlations. Uh, for example, um, uh, people who achieve more are probably more conscientious. Uh, they're more self-disciplined. Uh, they're more uh, con you know, likely to follow through. On the other hand, people who are uh, happier, and they have more positive emotions, they have more sense of satisfaction. Uh, those people often are, are those who are a little bit more emotionally intelligent, more self-aware, and maybe more open to novel experiences and uh, not, try to, not, not so interested in controlling everything about their environment. So those are personality traits. They probably give you aptitudes.
are experiencing some dimension of success. But I think no matter what your personality is, you get to define the balance that you will uh, call success for you. And so I think you know that that's the that's the unique aspect of it. You you get to make your own adventure. Richard, thanks so much for your time, and thanks for writing the book. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.